because I'm not fond of the, the term Easter because of its pagan roots. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that they went to the tomb, and the tomb, praise God, was empty. Amen. 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 Ain't you glad it's empty? I know I was watching, uh, I forget who the, the speaker was, and uh, I remember us talking about this last year. Last year at this time, we did our Resurrection Sunday service here with an empty building, with just about eight or nine of us, if I remember correctly, was gathered here, uh, and we recorded it and sent it out. The pandemic was just really starting to um, really flare at that point. It's nice to be back in God's house with God's people, amen? Uh, and our heart goes out for the folks who cannot be here with us, uh, some due to sickness and other things, and uh, we pray that they're online with us today. Um, and so, my, how a year has changed things. But we were talking about last year, about this time, we were talking about, you know, the cross, people wearing the cross. And when you look at it, nobody would ever wear a, uh, well, nobody would ever wear a gurney for lethal injection around their their neck. They didn't, they'd never wear a guillotine medallion around their neck. They'd, they'd never wear an electric chair medallion around their neck. But somehow, we are wearing crosses around our neck, an instrument of execution and torture. And we do that because of the love we have for the one who died on that cross for us. But what we really should be wearing is a medallion of an empty tomb. And I said that, and Brother Kevin showed up with what? A medallion of, of an empty tomb necklace, and I absolutely loved it, absolutely loved it. And I remember I was talking about this, this time last year. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of John, uh, chapter 1, verse 29. I do get asked from time to time, uh, while we don't do certain things here uh, for certain holidays, uh, and I have a real simple answer for that. First off, I can see me kicking something up here today, and uh, I had to move some stuff out of my way. I need some running room, amen? But I get asked why we don't do certain things that kind of surround certain holidays, certain practices, um, and I simply say this, I want to be known for being a center that beckons all those who want to know the truth. And if the love and the power that is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, is not enough for you or for someone else. I don't want to put anything else out there that may have an enticement that has nothing to do with the power of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is not enough for us to come and worship, then we're not coming to worship. We're coming to be entertained and listen, I may be entertaining at moments, but I do tell you the purpose of being here today is not to entertain. But it is to speak the truth of our Savior Jesus and the power of His resurrection. That is our purpose here at Heritage, is to promote the gospel. The gospel doesn't need entertaining. The gospel does not need flashy lights or, or some big, huge orchestra or anything else that you could imagine. The gospel needs nothing else but the gospel. Amen. And we've come to a place in our country where we've, we've come and we hear churches talking about the, the seeker-sensitive movement. 
What we've become is a marketplace where you can get your brand and flavor. Well, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is not Baskin Robbins. There's not 31 flavors. There's not another way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. And we will preach Him here as the Son of God who was crucified on a cross, who was put in the tomb and buried completely dead. But on the third day, amen, the tomb was empty because He's alive today, amen. That is the Gospel message. That He went to the cross to bear our shame and our sin. He was perfect and without blemish. And although he did nothing, yet he opened not his mouth to ever give a defense. Why? Because he was standing in my place and I have no defense. He was standing in your place today, my friend, and you have no defense. We're in a world today where people want to be made told that they're good and that you know everything about them is typically good. And maybe you just need a, a few areas that you need a little polishing on. I want to tell you today that, listen, you are absolutely undone and unclean apart from Christ. You don't need a polishing. You need saving. Amen. If the truth is not enough to draw a crowd, then we'll not have one. Because one day I will tell you that I will stand before God. One day Brother Kevin will stand before God. One day Brother Dave, Brother Danny, and all my brothers that have, that have taken on the calling of preaching will all one day stand before God. And we'll give an account of all that we've said and done. And I want to be found doing the will of God and preaching Him pure and in truth and not in any other way enticing anyone to receive anything else other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important to me today and it should be important to you. If the love of God is not enough to stir your heart today, then I pray by the end of this message something in you will have changed. I pray something in you will resonate and you will see your need for Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to start in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. It's also in your bulletin this morning. That's what I get for taking it down the wrong road. <coughs> Trust me, it's just iced tea. Uh. Yeah. <coughs> John chapter 1, verse 29. I'd like you to stand to your feet, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. I do want to tell you that the, at the end of the message today, we will be taking communion together, and I do want you to know that it has been prepared accordingly to the guidelines uh, that we have for safety here today. So individual cups, it was prepared, people wearing masks, gloves, the whole nine yards. So I want you to know that it's safe. That it, and, and trust me, I do understand if you do not want to take it, I, I, I totally get that. But I do want to tell you that we did our part today as best we could um, to be able to make sure that we followed every guideline so that you could enjoy communion with us today. 
Uh, and if you don't want to take that, we do have those sealed cups. We have some of them in the back room. We certainly grab those, uh, those ones that are pre-sealed. Uh, but I wanted today to, I wanted to be our family. We usually take communion together and, and Mary and Dave always made the bread. So I want you to know that this was a batch that we already had, that she had. That Brother Dave was a part of making. So to me, it's just something special today that we could do that together as our church family. As I got to tell you, I, I don't know how Mary could sing because I, I, I just my heart was thumping. This is the first Resurrection Sunday without my friend. That hurts a little. But at the same time, I rejoice. Because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ comforts me in knowing that it's just a temporary separation for those who know Jesus. Amen. John chapter 1 verse 29 says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we love you. Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the, Lord, by the joy and the comfort that we receive from your word. God, we pray today that everything said here on this pulpit today will be pleasing to you. And God, it will not be about me, the preacher. Lord, I just happen to be the one that received the honor of standing here today. But Lord, we know that it's all about you. God, we pray today, Lord, for hearts here today. Lord, that for those who know you, who may be hurting in some way, that, Lord, they will receive comfort from your word today. And, Lord, for those who are here who may not know you, they may know of you, but they don't know you. Father, today I pray that they see the amazing love that you have for all of us. A love so strong, so deep for your creation that you would send your son to take our place. To receive the beating that I deserve the crucifixion that I've earned through my reckless living. But instead, he took it for me. Lord, we know that you took it for all who will believe. So, Father, we pray today. There is a heart here today that is not comforted yet by these words that before the day is over, 
that they will know, Lord, you and the love that you have and the power of your resurrection. And we pray this today in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. You know, I remember when my first Resurrection Sunday here as pastor, and I was so excited. Before I had become pastor here, I had, I had preached a, a sunrise service or two for some other churches. But I had never preached the message that Sunday morning on a Resurrection Sunday, and I was so excited. Could not wait to get in the pulpit. And thought I really had touched on all the elements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I thought after that first time, I was like, well, I've pretty much summed it all up. I'm just good to go. I guess I'll just use his outline from here on out. That's how dumb I was. I was, I was naive. I was young. And God has since then greatly opened my eyes to know that I could preach every Resurrection Sunday from now until Jesus comes back and I still will never hit all the points and all the fine details that are contained in God's Word about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So what I finally got figured out is this, is that every Resurrection Sunday I... I look to a specific point of the resurrection. And I kind of center in on that. And this Sunday is no different. This Sunday, I want us to understand what it means for Jesus to, to be the Lamb of God. What did John mean when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we look in Revelation, it says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. What, is it, what does this being a Lamb mean? Do you realize that the Bible refers to Jesus uh, over 104 times as the Lamb? So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb? Paul the Apostle actually said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7-8. through 8. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Remember, leaven was, was kind of symbolic of sin. And at this, you know, when we take communion, we, we use unleavened bread. Because leaven represents sin. And Jesus was sinless. And so when he says, take of my body, and he handed his disciples the unleavened bread, it represented his sinless body and his sinless nature. That Jesus, while walking this earth for a little over 33 years, never, not once, ever sinned. By the way, that's kind of unique when you really, when you really look at it because... 
when we look at what Jesus did, sometimes it looked like as if he did sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Pharisees had a lot against Jesus. But the thing was, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the one who gave the law, so he knew the law. The Pharisees would interpret the law against their own knowledge and what they wanted it to be, and they would challenge Jesus as if he had done something wrong. When in fact, Jesus never sinned. I was talking to some preachers one day, as preachers often do, talking to some preachers and talking to them about some of the outreach stuff we're doing, talking about going out into the communities and different things that we were doing. And, and honestly, I was specifically talking about going out and playing music in other places, you know, secular music, and, and just living a Christian life before people and let them see that Christians are, we're normal people. Well, normal as we can be, normal people that love the Lord and realize what He's done for us. And so we live differently. We love differently. We love those who hate us. We do good for those who would take advantage of us. And so it's important that we go out into the community and be a Christian there, a follower of Christ, not allowing ourselves to be bent by the world's view and try to be cool, but instead just truly live as a Christian among those who are not. So we were talking about this, and they're like, oh, brother, you know what the Bible says. I love it when preachers say that. That means they're getting ready to quote a verse or most likely take it out of context. Sometimes. Oh, brother, you know what the Bible says. I knew I was getting ready to get a tongue lashing. I was ready. I was ready for it. You know what the Bible says to come out from among the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, he says that. You're right. I says, well, I guess everything I know is turned completely upside down now. Why would you say that? I was always taught Jesus never sinned. Well, brother, he didn't. I said, according to you, he did. According to you, me going out and living in a world among sinners and showing them the love of God and being with them, Apparently that's a problem to you, and you think I have sinned. So if I have sinned, then I'm just following my leader, and I guess he sinned too. Well, now that I really got him upset, they're like, I don't understand. You better explain yourself. Saying Jesus sinned. What's wrong with you? We was eating a cracker barrel, I remember. Tim Hawkins saying, ain't nothing like eating at the barrel. Sitting at the cracker barrel, I could see people starting to look around. I said, well, did Jesus go to the house of the tax collectors for a party the tax collector was throwing? Did he not do that? Well, yeah. All right then. I guess we're good, right? I finished my hash brown casserole and life was good. They didn't really say any more about it. You get the idea. You see, Jesus never sinned. But Jesus would go out into the world. He would eat with the tax collectors, the one that everybody else called unclean, the one that nobody else would let even walk into the synagogue because of what they had done. They had sold their, their brothers short by, by buying into the tax collection system, and tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. Turncoats, Benedict Arnold, you get the idea. But Jesus, Jesus went to have dinner with them. 
Matter of fact, to the point that the Pharisees said, look, he's going and eating with sinners. And Jesus said that it's, it's not the whole who need a physician. It's those who are sick. And when I, when I read how Jesus interacted with people, by the way, it wasn't the first time. He went to the house of a guy named Zacchaeus. We used to have a little song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree to see for Jesus he wanted to see or something like that. My cousin, remember, I remember my cousin singing that song in church one time, but her dad had taught her a, a different version of that song. And uh, much to my, my aunt's and my grandmother's chagrin, she sang the wrong version of that song. When he got to Zacchaeus, said, Zacchaeus, come down. Well, she told Zacchaeus to get something else out of that tree, if you know what I'm saying. And it was his hind parts. And so the, half the church laughed, and the other half was looking over to see what Grandma was going to do. It was, uh, it was an interesting day. The things that we remember from our childhood. But Jesus was absolutely sinless. And so when I, when I truly try to frame that in my mind in the right context, and I start reading how Jesus interacted with people, it, does, it just warms my heart to know that we can go out and we can live among other people and we can live as Christ and love them and have compassion on them. And that we can go out of here and live and do the things that Christ would do. Christ didn't hunker down in some place and, and paint the windows black and, and never interact. Instead, Jesus was very active in getting out into the community. And I want to challenge you today to live like Jesus. We have friends and family and neighbors and loved ones who need to know that Jesus cares and that Jesus loves them. And how will they know? Because we will love them first and then they ask us why. And then we will tell them that I am compelled by the love that Christ has shown me to now show you that very same love. But to do that, we have to be selfless. Because those opportunities and those times will come when we have the least amount of time available and the least amount of resources. And we're going to have to decide, are we going to take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us to love others? Jesus, absolutely sinless. And what Paul is saying here, listen, you're going to have to come out of that old sinful way of thinking. You're going to have to come out of that, that old way of thinking and doing it your way and instead see the story of Christ and live His way. What we want to look at today is what did John mean when he said, Behold the Lamb. What is it about this Lamb and why is Jesus referred to as the Lamb so often? And to understand that we need to take a walk back in time, if you will. We need to go back uh, in history to the book of Exodus chapter 12. Paul referred to Jesus as the Passover lamb. And so what was that? What does it mean for him to be the lamb? What does Revelations mean? As worthy as the lamb who was slain. And today we want to look at what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb, and what that means for us today. What does it mean that He became the Passover Lamb for you and for, I, and for me? In Exodus chapter 12, we pick up at verse 1. 
By the way, Brian said, boy, you got a lot of pages of notes here today. I said, a lot of it's scripture. Don't, you know, don't have a cow. Uh, he's, he was up there putting it all together for the screen. He's like, whoa. A lot of it's scripture. We're, all, we're good. And Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall take in your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And none of it shall remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike in the land of Egypt. The day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast unto the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. You know this story, right? The story of the ten plagues uh, in Egypt. This is the tenth and final plague. And God says, listen, death is going to pass through Egypt, through all of Egypt, and all of the firstborn of every house, including the people, the servants, and even the animals, shall die. Unless, unless they have the blood of the Lamb that they have sacrificed according to God's Word, and that blood is taken and put on the doorpost and the lentil of the door of that house. Last night was flipping through channels and, and the old Ten Commandments was on. Was it Charlton Heston? Right, Charlton Heston one, right? And, and that scene was just coming up where Joshua had the blood. He was painting over the doorpost. And then, then as death started to creep through Egypt, you could hear from house to house screaming starting one after the other. Screaming, why? Because death had entered the house and nothing they could do could stop it. Only faith in the blood of the Lamb. To the point that you are willing to do that which God says. Now think about that for a minute. It wasn't just do the Lamb your way. It wasn't take the lamb and say, well, you know what? I'm going to use half of this ham over here and I'm going to put the other half back for later because we can use that in a few months. I'm going to put it in the freezer. God gave specific things to do and He said, follow this. And if you follow this, which is His Word, then death will pass over you and over your home. He gave them very specific things to do. And He said, do it this way. 
And it was their faith. It's always been by faith through God's grace that we are saved. We look back in the Old Testament, we see the, the Mosaic Covenant and all the sacrifices and all that had to be done. And we see that and they say, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by following the law. No, I'll tell you, faith in that God made the law and that if, if you would follow it according to God's prescribed way, it was their faith in God that he would honor the law that saved them. And so here God gave them very specific reasons. And I love the fact that he said this. He said, listen, if your house is too small to be able to consume a whole lamb, go get with some other houses. Because there's always enough lamb, amen? There's always enough. It was never that the lamb was too small. It was that the house was so small that he could go get others and bring them in together and share the lamb, amen, and be saved by faith through God's grace in providing the lamb. Could you imagine what it would have been like to, to be in that town? Could you imagine? I, I look at some of these communities up along the road here and houses all kind of built close together and especially like some of them row of townhouses. Could you imagine death starting on one end of the townhouse? That whole row and just start walking and death starts creeping through and going from house to house. Could you imagine the blood-curdling screams that you would hear when nothing they could do would be able to save their loved one and their firstborn? Nothing they could do. There are no medical doctors. There are no magicians. There is no way to save other than faith through God in the blood of the Lamb. That has not changed today. You see, when Paul said that Jesus is the Passover lamb, it says that he was that, he was that the, or he was the sacrifice. He was the lamb that would shed his blood for all times. Why? Because he was absolutely perfect. But it wasn't just that he was sacrificed. You see, it's not just about the cross. It's about the empty tomb today. Because Jesus lives, amen. And because he was dead and now he lives, he has defeated death hell in the grave and he lives making intercession for all those who will call he's the sacrifice because he yet lives today on down in exodus 12 it talks about at midnight starting in verse 29 the lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of egypt from the firstborn of the pharaoh who sat on the, the, his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was at the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Pharaoh at this point said, Had enough. God has shown his power against every God that they held dear. You realize the ten plagues wasn't just random. God, those plagues were very specific against the gods of Egypt to show Egypt that God had power over all and that their gods were false, not living, and powerless over Almighty Yahweh, who is the I. The Bible is very clear today that you and I have a physical body and one day this body is going to give up the ghost. But we have an eternal soul that will either 
be ushered into the presence of God for all eternity, or it will die the second death and being thrown into the lake of fire where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And we'll spend eternity there. Eternity with no hope. Eternity knowing that a sacrifice was made on their behalf and they accepted it not. You see, it's, it's the power of His resurrection that excites me each day and that gives me the comfort I need to walk the next step. Power of the resurrection is the excitement that my wife depends on that gives her comfort to walk the next day and take the next step. You see, because we realize that death will sooner or later come to this body. And when you hear words of things like cancer and sicknesses that are terminal, you know, and it becomes very just real to you to realize, you know, you can live every day and not really think about death so much until you have a, a near miss. Or you get a diagnosis from a doctor telling that you have something that doctors have not yet figured out. You see, there are some bright people in this world And trust me, Sal, we, we, we go to doctors, but that's not where our hope lies. Amen? You see, if our hope lies in that only, I know the end result. Doctors can treat symptoms and they can help you along the way, but you know what they have not yet figured out? How to stop death from coming to your house. If you don't believe me, listen, I can tell you tales of holding my dear mother's hand watching as death passed through my house, and there was nothing that I could do about it. Nothing the hospitals could ever do. The doctor looked us in the eye and said, Mr. Hoffmesser, I want you to know that your wife is a fighter, and I want you to know that you've taken great care of your wife. I've never seen anything like it before, and you've extended her life by over a year. But i got to tell you, Mr. Hoffmesser, we've done all that we can do. There is nothing else that we can do. If there is something, we would do it. And money is no object, but there is nothing we can do. Her sickness is beyond our understanding and capability and we had to make the decision whether her to stay there or come home we brought her to our house just right up over the hill here 49 Willoughby Court and in that same room Two and a half years after Sal's mom was in the same exact spot, in the same exact room, of the same exact house. We held her hand as she passed, and we held my mother's hand as she passed. You see, people who put their hope in science and medicine are going to be let down. Why? Because they're not God. So we do have to come to that place where we go to decide if, if I want true hope, then it is only found in the one who has power over death. That is not a doctor. There is not a doctor in this land, in any country otherwise, that has the power over death. If we're going to have hope, it's going to be in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because death is imminent. Death will happen It'll come to your house. It'll come to mine. Today, my heart is broken 
because death came and took someone we love so dearly. But still yet, I have hope today. And my heart is comforted in knowing that, listen, that He trusted in the blood of the Lamb, just like I trust in the blood of the Lamb. And I know one day that we'll be reunited. Why? Because those who believe and confess in the blood of the Lamb and believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead and buried, and arose again on the third day, it's if we will confess Him as Lord, we will be saved. Amen? If there's any hope, it is the hope in the blood of Jesus. The sacrificial Lamb. Jesus told His disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 26 through 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When it says that He was the propitiation, it means that He was the substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, He took our place. We watched a show called Criminal Minds. You ever seen Criminal Minds? It's about weirdos. I like it. I is one. And it's about the weirdos that figure out the weirdos, right? That's what, that's what the show's about. Let's all be honest here. We can say weirdos. It's not one of the forbidden words, cancels words yet, I don't think. But in one of these, they, in one of the, the episodes, there was this man who was going to be executed and a woman who was also going to be executed for the, for, for the crimes that they had committed in killing, a killing spree. And I thought, you know, that, that scene, or if you've ever watched The Green Mile, right? I remember The Green Mile. Any of those movies that's got those execution scenes, I don't know about you, but my heart starts to beat real heavy when those scenes come on. And as they walk that prisoner down the hallway, dead man walking. Could you imagine being the one that's just walking along, knowing you're getting ready to go in the execution chamber, knowing that life is about over, you know that you committed the crimes, you know that you've deserved this punishment that you're about to receive. And so you know it's just a matter of a few more moments. You only have a, a few more moments to live and you're walking down through to go to the death chamber and get to the execution. But could you imagine right before you walk in the door of the execution chamber, somebody say, hey, I'll just stop a minute. You know what? I got you on this one. I'll take this one. You, you go on back and you go ahead and you live. And as a matter of fact, I'll just give you my life and you can have it forever. I'll go in and I'll take this execution for you. I'll let them strap me to the chair and put the electrodes on. I'll take this one for you, huh? Because I love you so much that I'll take your... Yeah, I know you're guilty. I know you did it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go live freely, huh? Outside of these bars, you just go and you live and be free and I will take this execution for you. 
for you. That's what Jesus does for you and I. Remember reading the story about a little boy. It was about a schoolhouse during the Depression right outside of Chicago. In the suburb there, Chicago's always been known as being a, a tough town, if you will. A place where gangsters are born and all that. And it was, here it was during the, the Great Depression and food was hard to find. And so there was this little schoolhouse and the, and the schoolmaster, he was, uh, he was a tough fella. He had to be to keep, you know, to, to keep order in his classroom. And so it was one of them one-room schoolhouses, you know, where all the grades are, are together. And they'd had a, they'd have a, they had a theft ring going on, or a, uh, this, uh, if you will, this serial thief on the loose. You see, every other day or so, a lunch would come up missing from one of the kids. You know, they'd bring their lunch to school. You remember when you used to carry your lunch to school, and they'd have their, their lunch pail or, or a little bag or something, and they would have And you've got to remember, this is a time where people didn't have much of nothing. And so finally, after a couple weeks, about every other day of these lunches going missing, they finally, they finally found the culprit. You see, it was a little boy named Bobby, and Bobby had been been stealing lunch because he didn't have anything to eat. And the taskmaster's heart just sunk for a moment because he knew that Bobby didn't have a whole lot to eat and that he was only stealing because he was hungry. And the fact is, the other kids really didn't have much of nothing either. And so it wasn't that nobody would share us since they didn't really have enough to share. And the taskmaster knew in his heart that Bobby was a good boy. He had never caused no trouble before. He'd never done anything like that. Bobby was just hungry. But the taskmaster knew that if, that if he didn't dole out justice, that the other kids would see that it's okay to do this. And that even though Bobby was hungry and didn't really have anything, you see, it wasn't like Bobby would go home and eat later. It ain't like he would just tell his hungry stomach, that I'll get something when I get home. When he got home, there wasn't nothing there either. And it seemed like it'd be okay, right? We, we, we want to okay things like that. You know, it's okay for Bobby to steal if, he, you know, if he's hungry. But the simple fact is, stealing is wrong. And the Scriptures preaches against it. And we know that it's a sin. And that... That schoolmaster knew that if he let this go unpunished, that somebody else would think it's okay. So the schoolmaster had, he had to deliver justice. He had to. It was required. You see, the laws were stated. And those who break the law They've sinned against the law. So little Bobby had to be punished. There wasn't no other choice. Schoolmaster's heart was broken. But he had to. And so when lunchtime was over, he gathered all the students to get them back in their desks. And he announced that the thief had been found. And so after everybody was seated, they, 
he told little Bobby to come up. And he got his leather strap that he was known for. He wrapped it around his hand. And he told Bobby to take his coat off. And to take his, pull his shirt up. So that he could give him lashes with the leather strap. To teach him and all the other students that stealing is wrong. Regardless of why. You see, this world today thinks that they have an excuse of some sort. Well, God will understand because, listen, God's laws are God's laws. If you break them, you're a lawbreaker. And you've sinned against God and that demands punishment. We live in a world today where people want justice. Listen, my friends, justice will be delivered. Amen. It will be delivered by Almighty God who's able to judge not only the actions of a man but the intentions of a man's heart. You see, we don't know those things. We listen to all the circumstantial evidence and we try to conclude in our courts of law whether someone is guilty. But God knows. We think that we're going to stand before Him one day with an excuse. I beg to differ. The Scripture says otherwise. And this schoolmaster, he wasn't going to let this pass either, even though he wanted to so bad because he understood why Bobby did it. So Bobby comes up and he takes off his coat. Then he had another coat and he took that one off. Then he had this heavy sweater. It was wintertime. Bobby took the sweater off, got down to his T-shirt, And Bobby just kind of stood there and wasn't going to put his shirt up. And the schoolmaster says, Bobby, you know the drill. I hate to do this, son, but you know I got to. So you pull that shirt up. And let me get this done and be over with. And once it's done, it's done. You understand me, son? Once it's done, it's done. But I got to do this. So Bobby pulled his shirt up. The schoolmaster could count every rib. This boy had no meat on his bones whatsoever. All the kids in the class took a big breath. They gasped because they couldn't believe this kid was so skinny that he was so malnourished. Tears welled up in the schoolmaster's eyes. He wanted so bad to not to whip this boy, but he had to because the, the rules demanded it. Just about that time, in the back, there was, a, there was a big boy. He was the biggest boy in the class, and his name was Jimmy. About that time, Jimmy jumped up. He couldn't stand it no more. And Jimmy started walking up the aisle and started taking his coat off. He said, that's all right, schoolmaster, that's all right. I know that the rules have got to be paid for. I know that the law was broken. And we got to do this. He said, but I'll tell you what today. I'll take this one for Bobby. You go ahead and you lay those stripes on my back. And 
and I know he deserves it, and I know he done wrong, but this day, this day, I'll take his place, and you win me, schoolmaster, because I can't let that go on like that. I know that, listen, that you deliver out that whipping that he deserves, and, and I know that he deserves it, but he can't take it. Look how frail he is. It'll take every bit of spirit that's within that boy, and it'll wear him out. He said, but I'll take his place, and that's what Jesus did for you and I, man. You and I stand before God naked with nothing. Just like Bobby with no excuse. And God would be just and right to deliver out His punishment on you and on me. Why? I've broken His law. You've broken his law. Oh, but behold the lamb. Behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Behold the lamb and his love that he has for you as you stand there as guilty as could be. Yet Jesus said, hold up, Father. Hold up. I'll take this one for him. And there he took off his coat and exposed his back to take the whipping that you and I deserve because of his great love for you and me. God sent his son to be a propitiation which means a substitutionary sacrifice. That means you deserve it. I deserve it. But behold the Lamb. I was reading Psalms 22 this week like I had sent the message out. And I don't want to embarrass him, but I got to tell you, Brother Glenn sent me a message. He said, Brother Huff, I... I was reading Psalms 22 and I can't get through it. To see the love that Jesus had and to see the punishment that He took just so I could go free. I love the songs of that, of that old, the words of the old Southern Gospel song that, that I could still go free. What kind of man would reach down his hand and do this for me? I'm unworthy to live and not fit to kill. But a man on the cross put me in his will so that I could still go free. Not only did he put himself in our place and take the beating that you and I deserve, but he says, you know what I have? And what I have I give to you, which is eternal life. We stand without excuse. We stand without any words to defend ourselves. Why? Because there is no defense for the guilty. You ever seen someone who's guilty try to give a defense and you just sit there and shake your head? You're like, if somebody believes that, they got to be the dumb. Listen, I want you to know ain't nobody pulling the wool over God's eyes. Amen. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away his sins. But when Christ had offered a single, uh, all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 9, 22 and Leviticus 17, 11 both point to the fact that it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But you see, it's not just the sacrifice. You see, if that's all Jesus did was die on the cross, then I want you to know that you and I are still living in our sin. Do you realize that? It's not just the cross. That's why I wonder why we've weared crosses so often and not the empty tombs. You see, friends, it wasn't just the fact that He stood in our place. It's the fact that He lives today. And because of His resurrection, we see the power of God and His ability. Amen. And it gives me hope today. Just as He was resurrected, I too shall rise again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. Apparently some had started talking and, and teaching that, that, there was no, that there was no resurrection. And Paul takes them to task here in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For we are even found being misrepresenting God because we have testified about God and that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised and your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then also all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, when we get the wrong perception of what saving means, when we get the wrong perception of what it means to live and what it means to have hope in Christ, when we got the wrong perception of that, we will live and we will have a false hope. You see, Christ didn't come to make your life flowery and easy and make everything rainbows and unicorns in this life. Christ came to give you an eternity in His presence after we have lived a life here that He has given us with the purpose in which He has given us to live. And sometimes that purpose has tough things, has tough times. Sometimes it includes suffering. <sighs> sometimes it includes loss. I'll tell you, sometimes I get to preaching and I forget which side I snotted on on this thing. And I just probably wipe snot all over my face. That's all right. If you see me in the bathroom washing later, you know I hit the wrong end. You see, we've learned the hard way over this last year. We've learned kind of a, some difficult lessons in what it means to live in hope. You see, if you live in hope of what if Jesus is going to do in this life and this life alone, you may find yourself discouraged when tough things happen and we're the ones trying to define what is good we will find ourselves on the short end of the stick. You see, I don't get to define good and neither do you. Remember when the, when the, the young man came to Jesus and says, Good teacher! He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. 
He was trying to teach him a lesson. In other words, you don't get to define good, young man. It's not what you think is good that makes it good. All that God does is good. You know, we live in a, I believe we're living in a time, I'm just going to be honest with you, we're living in a time of sissies. And we get to be bigger and bigger sissies every day. And the sissyhood of the world has crept into the church where we think that God's main concern is making life easy for you. Listen, it's not scriptural. It's not in there. Trust me, I've looked for it. It's not to be found. Matter of fact, Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you after you've suffered for a little while. Then we get to go home to be with glory. We're such sissies. I remember when medicine used to taste bad, not like bubble gum. Y'all remember that? They get now, you get antibiotics, it tastes like bubble gum. They gave me pain medicine coming home from the hospital. Hey, listen, they ought not do a fat boy like You don't give a fat boy pain meds that tastes good. Y'all know what I'm saying? Sal, give me another shot of bubble gum. Boy, that was good. Y'all know what I'm saying? They make it taste good. Y'all remember casserole? See, casserole will teach you about Jesus. You'll be praying to him later. Not only that, it teaches you that, listen, sometimes things are good even though they don't taste good. But we live in a world that don't even want to hear that. They don't even want to, I, I don't want something that doesn't taste good. Matter of fact, if you're going to give me something that's medicine, I want it to taste good. I'm not taking that nasty stuff. Back then, I remember my mother just about sitting on top of my chest with that spoon. It's good for you. Y'all remember that? And then got a whooping for fighting her, even though you sick. Y'all remember them days? Listen, I was already sick with the flu and had the croup and still got my butt whooped because I just didn't take my medicine because I said it tastes nasty. My mom said, sometimes good things taste nasty. She goes, you just got to understand what is good and what is not good. And you know what I found? The older I get and the wiser I get, the less I know about what is good. As I used to define it. Because I've been through some trials in my life and I didn't think that there would ever be a good moment come out of that trial. Only to be pastoring years later. And God helped me remember that trial that I had been through. And I was able to look somebody who was hurting dead in the eye and say, listen, not only do I understand I've been exactly where you are. And then I found myself afterwards thanking God with tears running down my eyes that he didn't, that, that when I was praying during that moment so many years ago, when I said, God, please fix this, please fix this. And he's like, listen, I'm going to fix it, but in my time, and you're going to learn from this, I got something you want to learn. Listen, God is good. Less and less am I able to define good except for that which God does and allows. Whether it tastes good or is good, it's two different things. I remember having to take creamulsion cough syrup. The main active ingredient was creosote. They won't even let you put creosote on fence posts no more. It's bad for the earth. Bad for the earth. You should have had it shoved down your throat. That was bad. But you know what? In the words of my grandfather, son, that'll cut the croup. Y'all know what cut the croup means? means it'll cut that stuff up and let you spit it out so it won't be rattling in your chest no more. I remember my grandfather looking me in the eye and I didn't want to take that stuff. My mother knew that I'd listen to my pap because I love my pap. 
My pap was the best. I know you probably got your own pap and you think he's the best, but my pap was the bomb diggity. I'm telling you right now, my pap was the man. My pap could get me to do things nobody else could get me to do because when he looked me in the eyes, when my pap looked me in the eye and said, son, you know I'd never hurt you, right? I'd never hurt you. I would never purposely do something for you that I would think that would bring you harm in any way. But the things that I do, I do so that you'll get better. You, you believe me, don't you, son? If you'd have saw my pap's big brown eyes, all those wrinkles in his face, all those wrinkles of hard years, and no matter how hard years, my pap was tatted up everywhere. My pap had tattoos all over his arms and his body. He's a tough-looking fellow. But when I crawled up on Pap's lap, and he looked me in the eye and said, Son, you know I wouldn't do nothing to hurt you, right? Oh, Pap, I know you never do nothing to hurt me. Then, son, you're going to have to trust me on this. You're going to have to take his stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's nasty. But, son, if you believe me, if the... If there's any love that you have for me, if you believe I love you, then you're going to have to trust me on this one. Okay, Pap. And I remember I'd hold my nose while he poured it down my throat. And after I'd take that medicine, he'd wrap his arm around me. And he'd just hold me. You know, God was showing me what he does for me. You see, God reminds me that he would never hurt me. He reminds me that he'd never leave me, nor forsake me. He reminds me that he loved me so much that he let his son take that beating that I deserved. I look back and I see where God was teaching me in those moments in my life. God says in His Word that He loves us, but He not only said it, but Romans. Aphael said that God commended His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that He said He loved us. Folks, He's shown us that He loves us. The world wants a Jesus that just makes life easy. It's not who he is. Jesus didn't come to make this life easy. He come to show us that we have purpose in this life and to give us an eternal life when this one, which is so short, is over. And the proof, the proof that he will keep his word is an empty tomb. Dr. John Piper said this, the meaning of the resurrection is that God is for us. He aims to close ranks with us. He aims to overcome all our sense of abandonment and annihilation. 
The resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration to Israel and to the world that we cannot work our way to glory, but that He intends to do the impossible to get us there. The resurrection is the promise that God, of God that all who trust in Jesus will be the beneficiaries of God's power to lead us in paths of righteousness and through the valley of death. Therefore, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 10, 9, is much more than accepting a fact. It means being confident that God is for you and that he has closed ranks with you and that he is transforming your life and that he will save you for eternal joy. Believing in the resurrection means trusting in all of the promises of life and hope and righteousness for which it stands. It means being so confident of God's power and love that no fear of worldly loss or greed for worldly gain will lure us to disobey His will. The hope and comfort in the resurrection that I've experienced in the last year since we got the, the news that day from the doctor when we, Sal was there. The comfort I have in the resurrection takes me beyond hope of what will happen in this life. You see, I pray that medicines do their work and that she gets better and we have a long time to take Genevieve out. Long time to spend watching our kids and hopefully our grandkids someday. Oh, listen, I, I long for that. I don't want you to think that I don't, and I pray for that every day. But the power of the resurrection gives me comfort beyond that. Because regardless of what happens in this life, I know and understand that there is a purpose and that Jesus came not so that this life would be easy, but so that we would live his purpose here and that we would have the promise of an eternity in God's presence. My comfort is in the resurrection, the power of God and his ability to keep us forever, not just for a little while here. By the way, maybe you're here and you're not sure about the resurrection. One of the things I found interesting was not only the disciples, when they went and saw the empty tomb, not only did they believe, but do you realize that even the Pharisees themselves believed? Let me explain it to you. In Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 11, it says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You see, if that had really happened, they would have just been telling the truth and the Jews would have never paid them to tell the truth. You don't pay somebody to tell the truth. You pay somebody to tell a lie and to keep it hid. But if that's not enough, then I want you to know that there are other historians 
Phlegon, who lived between 80 and 140 A.D., he was cited several times by Origen when Origen used as the early church father Origen and when he wrote to help under, other people understand Christianity. He said, now Phlegon in the 13th or the 14th book, I think, of his chronicles not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but he also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. On down it says, and with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified and the great earthquakes which took place. And then on down further it says, Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands had been pierced by the nails. Mara Bay Sarapoyan was another, Tacticus was another, and for time I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to go down to Josephus, who in his book of antiquities wrote this. Josephus was the Jewish historian. By the way, he was never a Christian convert. He had no reason to write this. Matter of fact, he had reason to not include this. But as a historian that was paid typically, from what I understand, by the Greek to, to write the history as well as the Jews, he wrote that which he knew to be right. And he wrote this, About the time lived Jesus, a wise man. If indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of the extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks, and he was the Messiah, that he was the Messiah. When he, when he was indicted by the principal men among us, Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so, for he appeared to them on the third day restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, have not disappeared to this day. I can give you more, but I won't for the sake of time. But I do want to share something that Jesus said. John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. That phrase, it is finished, comes from a Greek phrase, teleo. It means accomplished, but another meaning which I believe fits the best. It's an accounting term for paid in full. Folks, your sins have been paid in full by Jesus Christ. We know that he lives and that the tomb is empty. Had Jesus just been sacrificed and not lived again, then he would just be another sacrifice and we would continue that practice today. But he was the sacrifice for all time because he was crucified. But the power of God through him resurrected him. And because of that, that sacrifice is still covering us with his blood today. So Jesus, when he sat with his disciples, 
during the Passover, I, if you listen to one of the, I think I did it on the, one of the podcasts, can you imagine the disciples sitting around with Jesus at the Passover, not yet fully understanding that Jesus was the Passover lamb? And at the time that they were nailing Jesus to the cross was the time that the high priest would have been slaughtering the lambs. By the way, when we say sacrifice the lamb, that sounds kind of nice and concise. But do you ever thought about how they did that? They would stand over its back and have its head here, and they would hold the snout up, and they would take a knife, and from ear to ear, they would slice the throat of that lamb. Can you imagine how bloody it was inside the Holy of Holies? Because year after year, they had been sacrificing lambs, and they had been sprinkling blood over the mercy seat. Could you imagine what bloody mess that looked like? We think of Jesus and we think clean. He has cleaned us, but he has cleaned us by the shedding of his blood. Jesus was slaughtered for us. But on that night, and we'll close with this, on that night of the Passover, or that evening, Jesus enjoyed the Passover meal with his disciples, and he instituted a new festival a new practice that we will, we will end our service with this. In Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Remember, they don't understand yet what's about to happen. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is about to fulfill the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He says, and then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Would you bow your heads with me?